and its decisive pain by a handful of silence read by literarian chapter two the chilterns the bentley is parked in exactly the same garage as he left it tucked away in an old lockup near old spitalfield markets in the east end the security guard regards him with a little too much interest, the magpie glint of someone wily noticing something he shouldn't have, as Crowley gives proof of ID and shows the key fob he's been carting around in his pocket since he deposited the car here. Yeah, the man says, fixing Crowley with a measured look. He has the kind of voice that can give a rakishly angled eyebrow raise. A look that says he's seen most things during his reign as head of security in this establishment, and as such no nonsense will be boded between the hours of 10pm and 8am around these parts. You look like the geezer what originally had this place. Family resemblance. Crowley lies smoothly. The security guard rewards him with an unimpressed look. You couldn't have tried for a better excuse? He scoffs, sounding almost disappointed in Crowley, and hands his ID back. The reason for his nonchalance can be easily explained. The first and most central reason being that this man was a Londoner. His great-grandparents arrived off the ferry from what was then eastern Pakistan, and something in the air of the city, like it had done for so many new arrivals, inured something in them tempered a cityish capability that was passed down in the blood like a slightly discoloured heirloom. These capabilities were, namely, an innate ability to weather almost anything with a bit of a moan, a generalised mistrust of the public transport system, and the capacity to chuck down the sort of overmilked brown gritty slush people on the continent would deign to call coffee. London is an odd, old city, with odd, old habits and plenty of things that don't add up. This would just be another one. The second reason is this man, Roy Rabindranath Begum, named for both the famous Bengali writer, his mother's choice, and the captain of Man United from 1997 to 2005, his father's, had worked enough odd jobs and night shifts to only count this occurrence as the fourth most unusual thing he'd encountered. In comparison to that strange woman who kept garage 82 and whatever was kept in 44 that politely only made moaning noises between 11 and midnight, this unaging stranger was rather uninteresting in the grand scheme of things. Roy catches a glimpse of the stranger's yellowed eyes as the flash bastard wanders away from the security booth, with the bundled-up-looking bloke he came in with trotting along behind him, and wonders without much real interest if they're contacts or not. Crowley's key screeches in the lock. It stings of mould and stale air, and Aziraphale waves the dust away with a cough, but Crowley approaches the vehicle with a light step, reverently. He makes the sort of cooing noise some men make when talking to their cars as they buff the hood to gleaming shine, the sort of car owners who think applying designer hubcaps or personalised number plates are acceptable uses of their allotted time on earth. Crowley's attitude of firm, slightly sadistic love, so rigidly applied to his terrified plant life, does not extend to his car. 
Everyone who has ever owned a car knows tough love will only get you so far, and that a time-honored, more sensible strategy to adopt, when the engine splutters or the fuel gorge is dangerously swinging towards empty, is a bit of unashamed begging and groveling encouragement. Crowley has never had to revert to this strategy, because he and the Bentley have an understanding, but nonetheless, he dotingly waves the rust flakes off like dandruff to expose the gleaming hood, untouched and undamaged paintwork surfacing like an island rising above a dusty sea level. In return, the car busily and very quickly slips into something more appropriate for the occasion. The wheels bubble up from where they've sacked like loveless balloons. The fuel tank is refitted seamlessly into an electric system. There hasn't been a petrol station in operation for years now. And the bumper evicts the spiders that have been living behind it, to their displeasure and calls for the union to have a word about this. Crowley opens the driver door carefully, listening for the click as it opens, feels the leather give as he settles into it. Aziraphale gets into the passenger seat next to him. My dear, he says timidly, and Crowley comes to be aware that they've been sat motionless for a few minutes. It's like time hasn't changed, like they're just heading out for a drive. The last time Crowley was in this car, well, sort of this car, if one looked at it sideways and with a slight ontological squint, with Aziraphale, they have been driving back from Lower Tedfield. Aziraphale had had Agnes book in hand, absent-mindedly getting out of the passenger seat, and Crowley had been trying unsuccessfully to not worry about the fact the world was going to end. Just thinking, he says lightly, flashing a smile at Aziraphale and hoping it sticks. Missed the old thing. And then he puts the car into gear, even if the rest of the world has been lured by the false promises of the automatic shift, he still has standards, and they glide out into the just-breaking morning. He takes turn-offs at random. He doesn't have anywhere he wants to go. He gets comfortable in the driving seat, feeling the world righted from a tilted angle, the car rumbling beneath him, the morning looking to be set for a bright, clear day. Aziraphale taps his arm and holds out a packet of boiled sweets that he pulls from one of the pockets of his new coat. Crowley blinks. Where'd you... I got them from the vending machine while you were returning the rental car, Aziraphale explains. Crowley beams as he looks at the paper-wrapped things he can't stand the taste of, the sweets that only old people and Aziraphale are propping up the market for, and he gives a devil-may-care grin that doesn't go any way to disguising his fondness. He pops one in his mouth. It's lemony, and they aren't, he concedes begrudgingly, as bad as he remembers. Aziraphale's made a good dent in the blackberry ones by the time they start getting to the outskirts. M1 or M4? He asks Aziraphale, forgetting for a moment that the angel never learned to drive and fully deserving the stumped look he gets in response. I wouldn't presume, perhaps because you're in the driving seat? One of them, any day now, angel. Oh, goodness! M4, then! Crowley nods and then executes a perfectly timed, definitely illegal lane change. 
Aziraphale clutches the dashboard, figures this is next to useless, and goes for clutching the grab handle to his left instead. My dear! He exclaims disapprovingly, and Crowley just laughs and tips over the speed limit to hear him squawk indignantly and call him a terror, before going into his pocket to hand him another lemony sweet. Crowley drives for a while along the motorway before he decides to turn off, not quite fancying carrying on to slow and maidenhead. Instead, he angles up the country, the scenery becoming less marked with industrial endeavors the further they go, becoming more picturesque, passing blinding yellow fields of rapeseed, the big, curious eyes of cows watching them go. Aziraphale's pulled down the visor to shield his eyes from the ascending sun, but even he hums and suns himself in the morning glow, tapping his fingers along to the music and asking Crowley if this is the sort of bebop the young ones are listening to these days. He sounds as blasé and clueless about it as ever, and Crowley wonders whether to tell him that the young ones brought back the gavotte about twenty years ago and set it to dance music when trance came back into fashion. After a while, they hit the sloping, chalky fields of the Chilterns. They pass great sweeping pastures enclosed by wire fencing, roaming herd of sheep, their painted identification marks providing a mindless topic of conversation as they try to distinguish which farmer, blue squiggle on the rump or reddish line on the neck, owns what flock. They drive through little market towns with squat sandstone buildings, past ramblers with heavy packs who are already sweating in the sunshine. Aziraphale points out a bird of prey that they both watch saw and dive to grab at something in the hedgerows, and the debate as to whether it was a red kite or a buzzard occupies a solid twenty minutes of ornithological disagreement. They see a sign for a national trust park, and Crowley's beginning to feel peckish, his mouth dry and sticky from all the lemon sweets. He leaves the main road and eventually finds a graveled spot to park up near the visitor's centre. Aziraphale gets out of the car, stretching out his body, and looks loath to take off the coat, hat and scarf he's been adorned in since London. He'll boil in that sort of clothing, however, and Crowley tells him as such in slightly more blunter fashion, and Aziraphale nods mournfully and takes them all off, folding them all circumspectly to sit in the back seat. Crowley looks around for food and figures they might find something of interest in the visitor's centre. Probably a little café, a small selection of overpriced sandwiches or something. Together they have an idle look at the gift shop, and this turns out to have been a mistake. Aziraphale fawns over a series of fridge magnets with a variety of wildlife-related puns, clearly taken with them, drawn particularly by the Be Happy magnet with a smiling, waving cartoon honeybee and the sickeningly twee picture of a doe and buck stylized around an I love you dearly. Crowley flat-out refuses when Aziraphale makes a suggestion about buying them for their kitchen. Although his heart does a funny little flop when Aziraphale calls it our kitchen. Although he expresses an interest in the grumpy cartoon fox coiled around a for fuck's sake. Aziraphale sniffs and says he doesn't approve of such coarse language. 
After a few moments, Aziraphale is lured in by the book section and Crowley ambles over to the front desk, hands in pockets and studying the various booklets for different tourist destinations nearby. Anything take your fancy, dear? The woman on the till, who clearly shares Aziraphale's abysmal sense of taste and has the pin badge version of those kitsch magnets decorating her lanyard. Crowley particularly despises the additions of Stop Badgering Me and What a Hoot, complete with a smug little tawny owl. Just browsing, Crowley replies. Not really been round this neck of the woods before. Up from the city? The woman seems delighted to have found a Londoner to convert to the wonders of the great outdoors. I would definitely recommend going on one of the bluebell walks. They're just coming into season, beautiful views, and we aren't too busy, what with it being a weekday, so you wouldn't have to deal with people taking selfies all the way along the route. A nice, steady afternoon walk, nothing too strenuous. Hmm. Crowley says, finding himself quite taken by the idea of wandering in nature with Aziraphale, even though they're both city dwellers at heart, and it won't take long before they complain about the midges that will no doubt zero in on them. I'll ask my partner, he might be. He turns to shout over to Aziraphale, but Aziraphale isn't there. Aziraphale? He says, frowning and making an excuse-me gesture to the woman, wanders over to the gift shop bookshelves, finding only a couple glancing over local history books. There is something sick and clawing in his chest as he looks around. His heart is beginning to rise up his chest like a floodline. He marches over to the other side of the gift shop, looking near the postcard columns, the boxes of themed stationery, his eyes flitting anxiously. He's probably gone back to the car. He thinks belligerently. Gone to get his scarf or something. He's fine, he's fine. He won't thank you for fussing like this. For someone's sake, pull yourself together. It's easier said. Aziraphale isn't in the car park and he isn't by the car. And despite his best intentions, Crowley's anxiousness is evolving into a full-fledged storm system of panic. Aziraphale, he says again, casting his eyes around the car park, and his voice has gone feeble, strangled in horror. He doesn't even shout it, because what would be the point? Because he knew this would happen, knew if he turned his back for an instant, he'd lose him all over again. And he's letting out a quaking breath that's climbing up a multi-step program from tremulous nerves to absolutely losing anything left of his cool in the middle of this National Trust car park, and he presses his hands to his eyes, and this can't be happening, God, he can't go through this again. Maybe heaven took him after all, he thinks feverishly, a hot bolt of terror driving through him. Maybe he just disappeared like last time, taken by forces outside of their control, and Crowley's had fifty years alone, so who was he kidding to think he could have a happy ending? He shouldn't have trusted it. God, he'd been so stupid. Crowley? Aziraphale's behind him, looking bewildered, his arms full of foodstuff he's clearly just bought from the cafe. 
he's dropping them without consideration, striding towards him, and Crowley's trying to wipe away the wetness on his face and snarl angrily at Aziraphale for being so thoughtless, for frightening him like that. Anything could have happened to you, Angel. But failing in both, when Aziraphale looms into his space, making a cavern of their bodies, his palm over Crowley's chest, telling him firmly to breathe, to calm down, dear boy, everything's all right. Where were you? Crowley hisses, blisteringly furious, but that's easier than calming the clanging in his chest, at clearing the cold that splintered over him like a sudden frost. You were there, and then... Don't do that to me. I thought, for someone's sake, Aziraphale, you could have been... His mouth snaps shut because he can't say it and he bites his lower lip. Aziraphale didn't mean it. Of course he didn't, but that wasn't the point. He'd held on all those years. He'd believed in the same way drowning sailors believe in the life preserver they're clutching to, and he'd held on with unremitting certainty as the years waned and the boy became flimsier. He hadn't believed because the world was fair, as that was provably false by a number of obvious counts, or because he followed some meaningless affirmation that things would ultimately turn out well in the end. As that was a load of placatory nonsense thought up by the same sort of people who said suffering made you stronger, who said there was a reason for everything to happen. Nothing about what had happened had been imbued with some secret meaning. He wasn't stronger because he went through it. It had been hard and it had hurt, and he'd spent most of his time not searching, drinking, with a sort of reckless commitment to not see sobriety catch up with him. No, he'd held on because he believed deep down that somehow he was owed something by the universe, because it was either that or admit he was lost, that he had nothing, he'd lost everything, that he'd failed. And he couldn't do that again. He couldn't bear it. Oh, my dear, Aziraphale says, distraught, a horrendously patterned handkerchief suddenly in his hand that he uses to dab at Crowley's damp face, wipe at his eyes. Oh, my dear. Dear boy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. His eyes are prickled with a horrified guilt. I thought, dear me, it was just a... I didn't even think. I'm dreadfully sorry. I thought we could have a picnic, you see, and... He trails off, devastated by his mistake, clearly wanting to reach out to Crowley, but not knowing if his gestures would be rebuffed. Crowley's anger dies flameless, although his terror endures like embers in his chest. He feels ashamed, embarrassed that Aziraphale saw him like that. But Aziraphale doesn't look judgmental. He looks worried and upset with himself, his hand still hovering over Crowley's heart. Okay, he says. He breathes in and meets Aziraphale's distressed gaze. His stupid, treacherous body continues its feverish mantra, but looking at Aziraphale helps him turn the volume down.
Okay. He adjusts his lapels, carts his hair back and nods to himself. He might be an emotional wreck, but at least he looks stylish. He tries to communicate to Aziraphale that their next course of action should be to move past this. Not forget about it, but just postpone discussing it for a while until Crowley stops feeling like he's about to scream. Aziraphale nods and he must pick up something. He comes round to Crowley's side, presses a hand briefly against the small of his back. Let me tempt you to lunch, dear boy, he says, and the foodstuffs are back in his arms. He gestures with his head to the picnic tables over to the left of the visitor's centre. Their impromptu lunch is conducted on a wooden picnic bench, the top of which Aziraphale primly brushes with the slightly sodden handkerchief to clear wayward crumbs. Crowley sits down first, adjusting the umbrella over the table to shade them from the sun now very much midday. Aziraphale deposits the pile of things he bought like a hunter returning with his hoard of treasures, and then produces two little travel bottles of wine that are slick with condensation from his pocket. He gives a little weak ta-da, shaking them like he's revealed Crowley's card from one of his magic tricks. After a pause, he sits down next to Crowley rather than opposite. Their knees knock together, and Aziraphale opens the first packet, a plowman's sandwich, a little squashed from being dropped, and giving half to Crowley. Crowley takes it, and maybe his hands are still betraying him, and maybe he's stained by the memory of panic, but he smiles at Aziraphale, and it reaches his eyes, and that matters. That matters. Aziraphale presents the contents of all the food packets like he's personally delivering Christmas. And he keeps up a mindless patter of words, not because he wants to talk, but because Crowley needs it, until Crowley banishes the final ghosts of his panic and joins in, stepping in to join the rhythm of Aziraphale's conversation. Despite the rocky start, the afternoon plays out kindly. They spend an hour dining on their mini-feast, letting the warm weather sink into their bones. Crowley leaning sun-dozy against Aziraphale. If anyone from downstairs was minded to pop up to give him a drop-up inspection, although demons are notoriously paperwork-shy and Crowley would likely be expected to fill in the relevant report himself, he would be getting a sternly worded write-up for his most undemonic crimes of lunching with an angel, smirking at an angel's joke as though they were amusing, most angels being infamously humorless or tickled only by doctor-doctor jokes. And worst of all, permitting a foot-soldier of the Divine Army to tempt him into buying two childish fridge magnets of a bee and a fox. Crowley, being a demon also values the twin skills of A, knowing when to pick his battles, and B, knowing how to use his wiles to his advantage. As such, he's got a twister out of the whole thing, having made meaningful eyes at the ice cream van and indicating without speaking that it would be wonderful if Aziraphale could go and get him one. Although he's loath to move, perfectly comfortable leaning against Aziraphale all afternoon, Crowley mentions the walk the woman had told him about, 
and Aziraphale, finishing off his own 99 cone, licking the dripping raspberry syrup off his fingers, takes to the idea, and then it's decided. After deposing of the rubbish in the suitable bins, they follow the signs to the right of the visitor's centre, taking the foot-beaten path that after a few minutes veers down from trimmed meadow into a wooded area, the great backs of beech trees arching over the path and breaking up the sunlight. Aziraphale seems content to admire the large obelisk-shaped monument from a distance, foregoing reading the plaque which is likely dedicated to some past military victory or another. And they continue, avoiding muddier patches of the route, nodding at any walkers they see going in the opposite direction as they follow the arrows of the path, listening to the chirrup of the birds in the trees and hedgerows. They're walking so sedately, their surroundings so peaceful, and Crowley is wondering if it would be so bad if he sat down, if they dozed right here against the trunk of this old chestnut, if he could slip into something more comfortable and recall what it feels like to have the sun on his scales when Aziraphale presses his arms. Oh, Crowley, look! he breathes. Crowley follows the line of Aziraphale's fingers. Up ahead the path, more beech trees sprout up from the ground, providing a density to the woods. Carpeting the ground between each one are bluebells, stretching as far as they can see. There were pockets here and there that Crowley had noticed as they walked, but these are spread out like a purpling carpet, a sea of delicate faces turned up towards the sun, almost crowding onto the path. It's beautiful, Aziraphale says. His hand softened Crowley's. His face wowed with delight, sun-blemished and beaming. There isn't a shadow on his face, not here. Beautiful, Crowley thinks, looking at Aziraphale. They tarry leisurely in the Chilterns for a while. When they get back in the car to continue their journey, Aziraphale's bought a little touristy guidebook for the area to go with their magnets, and he slowly reads out little sections that pique his interest. He prefaces each one of them with a variation on Oh my dear, look at this! And Crowley is warmed by every version and wonders why it took the world ending for them to think of doing this together. That being said, Crowley hums non-committally to most of the suggestions, because all of Aziraphale's choices are rather predictably old country homes of some aristocrat or another, which always seem to play host to things like the largest collection of antique wooden spools, or medieval cooking cauldrons, or, in one case, the most extensive collection of embroidered bed linens in northern Europe. Crowley treats these with the same respect he'd given to the symposium on bookbinding and restoration that Aziraphale had once invited him to at King's College, with a polite but clear indication that was not him and wasn't likely to become him any time soon. Aziraphale, to his credit, 
shakes off each refusal like water of an umbrella, and Crowley would swear Aziraphale was deliberately choosing the most esoteric and dull-sounding offerings just to rile him if the angel's face wasn't an open picture of perfectly suspicious innocence. There are a few grandly landscaped manor gardens that Crowley quite fancies, and a few tea shops that come highly recommended with effusive reviews as to the quality of their patisserie. They stop in one of these quaint market towns for a cup of tea, and it must be a good day, because Aziraphale takes two sugars in his tea and even eats half the bakewell tart Crowley ordered out of habit. Before they leave, Aziraphale makes darting, obvious eyes at the charity bookshop. Crowley pretends to be put out and follows him in while he peruses their limited stock. What does prick up Crowley's interest as they drive is a sign for the Hellfire Caves, and he diverts them to High Wycombe with grand stories of the things he used to get up to in the good old days. Oh, it was positively bacchanal, Angel. You would have hated it. Full of rich toffs playing paganism and getting slaughtered, you know? He says offhandedly. I met Benjamin Franklin, tempted him into a few compromising situations with the ladies, if you catch my drift. Aziraphale raises an eyebrow, managing to indicate a great many things in that... Aziraphale is not a prude by any means. Crowley knows exactly what sort of things I spoke about and, from the rumours, put into practice in those members-only gentlemen's clubs and invitation-only dinner parties for the poets and aestheses of the decade. But he's not one to brag about it, meaning Crowley has to do the job for both of them. I went once, Aziraphale says, almost thoughtlessly. No. Crowley's smile doesn't fit on his face. You? Angel! I knew a few of the brothers from some of the literary circles, Aziraphale says defensively, his pride clearly dented by Crowley's disbelief. And they would talk about these gatherings they'd have, that I simply must go, and then one of them invited me and, well, it would have been terribly rude to refuse. And it was all so silly, what with the chanting and the ridiculous customs. So I gave my cloak to one of the rather chilly young ladies and just sampled some of their rather fine cherries instead. Angel! Crowley says again, delightedly. How did you square that with upstairs? I told them I was taking a frontline approach to drawing souls back to his grace. Aziraphale replies frostily, and it takes a few minutes for Crowley's belly-aching laughter to die down. Just when I think I know you, he says, and Aziraphale's defensive posture deflates and he chuckles. You do know me, my dear, he replies with a doting tone, and if Aziraphale's ability to sense great swathes of emotion is uncorrupted, Crowley must be letting off great quantities of love in heady tidal waves. From Aziraphale's smile, maybe he can. The caves are closed when they get there in the late afternoon, but Crowley's never been one for opening times. 
they hop over the mental barriers and walk past the rather gimmicky setup of fake flames and a sound system designed to pump spooky sound effects around the cave system. The tunnel walls of chalky rock follow via safety regulations closer than he remembers, the way illuminated by neon green emergency exit signs. There's a few things he had forgotten about this place. Mostly that the tunnels lack the atmospheric candle sconces that used to bracket the walls, which doesn't bother Crowley, but which must be uncomfortably dark in places for Aziraphale. The second is that these underground tunnels, warren-like and with an intentionally unpredictable geography, are thinner than he'd thought. The sides enough for two people to walk abreast, but not much more, the ceilings excavated low and almost head height. He regrets this immediately. Aziraphale moved in snugger against him, has taken his arm. You okay? Crowley murmurs. The sound reverberates with an ugly distortion around the tunnel. I'm fine, Aziraphale says, and maybe he means it, because he nudges Crowley with an elbow and continues. Go on then. I know you're practically dying to tell me about all your sordid little escapades. Crowley obliges, keeping half a mind on Aziraphale, making sure this isn't going to trigger anything unpleasant in him. He name-drops the names of the great and good, relatively, of the earlier centuries without shame, allows himself to twist and exaggerate some of the details of the revelries and orgies, which he'd generally kept out of, using the opportunity to have his pick of the finest wines and offering encouragement when it was required like some kind of spectator sport. They make their way to the inner temple, and the tunnels darken, the lights deliberately more spaced out, the shadows stretching. When they eventually get to the end of the tunnel system, the room done up in an equally gaudy fashion to the entrance, pocked with unconvincing waxworks of 18th century aristocrats getting pissed, there's only one light. Crowley looks at Aziraphale, who has set his jaw, has fixed his gaze on the light. Would you mind awfully if... <coughs> Aziraphale coughs and inhales deeply. Would you mind turning the light down for a moment, my dear? He doesn't sound sure about it, and Crowley tells him as much. You're not... Well, the darkness doesn't exactly suit you these days, Aziraphale. He says tentatively, wondering if Aziraphale would get defensive at telling him he's scared of it in not as many words. Aziraphale doesn't. I have to... I can't be frightened forever, he says insistently, more to himself than Crowley. I'm... I'm not there anymore. I just need to... Would you, Crowley, please? Crowley sighs, and he's not happy about it. If I think for a minute it's going badly, he warns sternly, but Aziraphale's hand tightens reassuringly in his own. I trust you, Aziraphale says. Crowley turns the light off, and Aziraphale breathes in a shocked breath. 
Crowley's night vision kicks in. The darkness cocoons both of them, but Crowley can still see the outline of the absurd mannequins, the structure of the flint walls, the fake structures made to look like church architecture. Aziraphale's hand is clamped in his, and his breathing isn't relaxed, but he isn't panicked. How are you doing? Crowley asks. Aziraphale bobs his head, but clearly doesn't trust himself to speak for a moment. It was like this. He breathes out finally. His words carry in the cavern, take on unsettling echoes. Unrelentingly dark. At the beginning I would make so much sound and it would just echo back on me. And the mind is such a funny little thing. In the absence of signals, it makes them up. Sometimes I'd hear you whistling, as though you were just outside the door. Crowley doesn't want to know. It hurts to imagine. It crushes something inside him, and he wants to fling the lights back on, illuminate this whole cave system so Aziraphale never has to fear the dark again. But Aziraphale isn't frightened of the dark. It's not a very human fear of what he can't see, of the shadows that scuttle wrong out of the corner of your eye. What Aziraphale is scared of has already happened to him. I'd see things, Aziraphale admits, and his voice has gotten smaller, tremulous. People. Figures. You. What did I say? Crowley asks, but Aziraphale shakes his head fiercely, and Crowley gets the sense that that was the wrong question. It doesn't matter, he says. He wasn't real. Nothing he said was real. But you're here. He clenches Crowley's hand even tighter. You're here, and it's dark, and I'm not there anymore. No, Crowley says, returning the grip. No, you're not. Aziraphale gives Crowley a wobbly smile when he turns the lights back up. Thank you for that, dearest, he says. And it's been a day for raw emotional outbursts, apparently, and they both feel exhausted. Crowley suggests they go back to the car and find a hotel for the night. Aziraphale agrees and they walk back, the lights brighter all the way along their route, and Crowley wonders whether Aziraphale is doing that, or it's just the sense of heaviness in the air that's lifted. Aziraphale is tiring, having been awake since they arrived in London, a recent record for him, but he stubbornly refuses to admit it, even when Crowley asks. Crowley subtly puts on classical music on the radio and suggests Aziraphale fold his scarf and rest his head against it so he doesn't get neck ache, and then Aziraphale's out like a light. Crowley smiles, pleased at the success of his cunning scheme, and conjures a thick tartan blanket to cover the angel's legs as they drive. He turns the radio to a different channel and keeps driving. They're nearing Reading, and the traffic has thinned out since rush hour, leaving the road scabbed with minor roadworks and limited cars, and they could stop here and find a hotel for the night.
Equally, Crowley could keep driving, but even though he doesn't quite feel up to indulging in sleep these days, he's a creature of comforts and would quite fancy a stop. He'd seen a sign of a bath a little while back and is approaching the turn-off. He'd visited Bath once, many years ago. He'd run into Aziraphale in a caladrium, the angel looking uncomfortably sticky and sweaty from the spa, and clearly trying to distance himself from a dreadful bore of a conversational partner, some visiting Roman senator or another. He recalls rescuing the angel from that particular social quandary by implying to the senator some politically damaging details about some of his trysts with slaves, and when the man had bolted, he and Aziraphale had spent a delightful afternoon catching up, and later he'd dragged his counterpart to a little out-of-the-way tavern. Come on, Angel, you can get some of your monthly quota in while we drink. There's all sorts of gambling and sordid little goings-on. You can try and tempt them all over to the moral life. It'll be a challenge. Crowley remembers the visit with fondness. Aziraphale hadn't done any thwarting, but then he hadn't done any tempting, and instead they'd polished off a rather spectacular bottle of K-Cuban wine. Crowley takes the road for Bath. Two hours later he gets there and has managed to find a hotel of suitable calibre that he's sure he can persuade to give them a room. As the Bentley slows to park, Aziraphale blinks awake, jolting only slightly when he sees his rumpled reflection in the darkened glass of the passenger window. It's only a slight divergence from his usual look. It's Crowley's strong suspicion that Aziraphale was created, looking slightly windswept. We're in Bath, Crowley says. I... we were here once, weren't we? Aziraphale asks. Years ago. That's the one. When you got that bottle of K-Cuban Red, Aziraphale says, sounding a little bit more awake. And I had to write a report as to why an entire tavern of freedmen had a spontaneous vision of the goddess Hestia when they looked at me. You've got to admit it was hilarious. Not to Gabriel. He was furious. I couldn't exactly tell him it had been you, could I? I was meant to be thwarting you. And an excellent job you were doing. Crowley chuckles at Aziraphale's expression, which he's trying to school into unimpressed, but secretly tickled by the memory. You want to stop here, or do you want to keep driving? You've been driving all day, dear. You must be tired. Aziraphale puts a hand on his arm. Let's rest up for the night. There's luckily a room free, so Crowley doesn't even have to convince the staff that he's a paying guest already. It's when he opens the door and sees the two single beds, carefully made and with square chocolates on the pillows, that he stops. And it shouldn't surprise him. Why should it? The receptionist hadn't made assumptions when she saw the two of them booking in. Crowley had thoughtlessly said yes when she told him about the room. But he's wrong-footed somehow, disappointed in a way he can't articulate. 
Aziraphale seems dismayed too, a crestfallen expression as he sees the sleeping situation that he quickly banishes, but that might be wishful thinking on Crowley's part. Aziraphale's nap hasn't shaken his tiredness, and he makes his apologies to Crowley as he divests his shirt and waistcoat with a wave into the most dated flannel pyjamas. Crowley tells him not to be daft, to get some sleep, that he'll amuse himself with the late-night channels, but as he sits on top of the covers, his back leaning against the starchy pillow, his attention is scatty and disquieted, and he channel-flicks in a huff, growing increasingly irate. He looks over at Aziraphale, breathing lightly over on his right. He's curled up right up against the edge, his back to Crowley, but even though the bed is sizable for one, he's left enough space for another person. Maybe he's not ready to say things out loud. Maybe the day has been full of too much vulnerability without adding this one to the pile. But it's intentional in the unsubtle way only Aziraphale can manage. An undemanding offering that Crowley can take or ignore as he chooses. It's been a long day. His nerves feel scraped, and there is something here that neither of them has bolstered the courage to confront. But the night is quiet, and Aziraphale wants him, and Crowley has always been the most selfish person he knows. He sighs and flicks the TV off. His resolve crumbles like a shoddy sandcastle. He shucks off his tasteful smart casual attire into some rather fetching pyjamas of his own, clambering over to the other bed and settling under the covers before he can change his mind. Aziraphale snuffles in his sleep and shuffles back against Crowley, a comfortable weight against his ribcage, but he doesn't wake. Delicately, Crowley places his arm around Aziraphale's waist and laces their fingers together. He rests his head against Aziraphale's neck, and they'll have to talk about this sometime, but not now, not tonight. He still doesn't sleep, spending the night lulled into calm by Aziraphale's breathing, but he finds he doesn't mind that so much.' 